0: they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles till the times the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with forbearing of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your head, because your redemption is drawing near. Verse 29. And he told them a parable Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with uh, drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man." And every day he was teaching in the temple, and by at night but, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olive. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Let's pray. So Lord, we come to you this, this this morning, Lord, to be encouraged by your word, uh, to be challenged by it, Lord, even though there are passages, especially in this story, that are in this passage, in this text that are difficult to understand, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would lead us to understanding, Lord, that you would lead us to clarity. Lord, I pray that you would lead us to faith in you. Lord, I pray, Lord, that this morning that you would convict us of sin, areas of that uh, we have been tempted, areas where we have not been careful and not have prioritized you and your word and your church. Lord, that you would lead us to repentance and you would lead us to change and that we would put our faith in you. We would put our faith in your word and that, Lord, that you would lead us to invest time and effort and energy into Uh, learning your word and being with your church and gathering with your church to understand your word and to live by it. Lord, we pray for those who are not with us. We pray for those who are uh, far from us, people that are uh, are away for certain reasons, Lord, some better than others. We pray, Lord, that you would convict those that are away and you would bring them back. We pray, Lord, that you would, uh, for those who are away because they are sick, Lord, I pray that you would heal them and that they would be able to gather with us next week. We thank you, Lord, for those who came last night. Uh, We pray, Lord, for those who are not believers. I know there were many that weren't. We pray, Lord, that you would lead them uh, to your church, but Lord, ultimately, you would lead them to Christ and that they would be saved and redeemed and gathered into the body of believers. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so in my, I'm going to start off. This is a very difficult passage. Anytime you, uh, you get into an apocalyptic literature, uh, this, even though we think of apocalyptic literature as revelation, Jesus does speak and he does use apocalyptic uh, language uh, in his teaching. He definitely does it right here. Uh, it's a very difficult passage, uh, talking about judgment and things like that. But I want to start with talking about something a little bit lighter than, than that, but uh, that ju- does have a point and a connection to what we're going to be talking about. Uh, one of my favorite cartoons growing up, and still they revived it, uh, on Disney uh, is DuckTales. I'm a big fan of DuckTales. Love the theme song. Uh, we'll sing it and hum it to myself. We sing it. My kids like it. Actually, on the way to the camping trip, Lincoln was watching DuckTales. Uh, and um, one of the things about the show is the boys, right? Uh, the three boys, the three brothers. One of them, Huey, is a big, is a part of the Woodchuck Junior Woodchuck group, right? And it's kind of like a, a, like a fictional version of the Boy Scouts in the DuckTales world. Uh, and he has a book with him called The Junior Woodchuck Guide. And anytime they're in a, in a situation where they don't know what to do, he, he always breaks out his Junior Woodchuck Guide, which contains information and advice on every possible situation. And so the most obscure creatures that they confront somehow in the Junior Woodchuck Guide, they have detailed information on what that particular creature is and how to survive it, Right. It has all this random information where one, in one particular episode, Donald Duck, who is their uncle, says, how could that small book possibly hold all that information? He has this observation. It's like, how could that small woodchuck guide hold so much content and so much information about everything? And I bring that up because in that particular story, they use the junior woodchuck guide to help them in life. When they're in situations they don't know what to do, they open the Junior Woodchuck Guide, and it tells them what to do. Now, in our world, we don't have the Junior Woodchuck Guide, but a lot of people in life will use something to guide them in life. In situations of struggle, in situations of uncertainty, they go to something to provide them information about what to do. One of that particular source, maybe less now than that used to be, is, the, is, is Oprah Winfrey, uh, the Oprah effect. Uh, I was reading about her. I didn't really know this, but at, at the time when she had her daily show, where she did five different shows a week, she had 48 million viewers weekly. That's a lot of people that are watching her, her shows and her advice. So there's a lot of people that look to Oprah as a guide. In a sense, Oprah was a guidebook to life. Uh, Of the books that she promoted in her Oprah book club, 55 million books were sold. That people, when she would talk about a certain book that she saw as, as, as helpful in life, people would go out and buy that book. There's 2 million people that subscribe to her magazine currently even even something else other than Oprah is cable news. Uh, there are dozens of hours per day that people digest uh, cable news. Uh, Three million people watch Fox News daily. Uh, Two million watch CNN daily. One point six million people watch MSNBC daily. So it doesn't matter if you're on the right, politically or the left politically, you are digesting Cable news. Why? Because people look to that as a source of guide, as something. What do I? How do I make sense of what's going on in the world? I'll go to my news, cable news personality, every whatever hour his shows or him or his or her shows on, and then they will tell me how to understand what's going on in the world. Think about Facebook's articles and posts and podcasts. All these different sources of of guides to life. From whom do you seek truth and guidance for your life? Uh, Alan Jacobs, who's a professor of humanities at Baylor University, says, culture does have a catechism. It catechizes people. Culture teaches us what matters and what views we should take what matters. Either it be TV, radio, Facebook, Twitter, podcasts, they can connect you to endless sources and content that will give you whatever guidance you want but does it have any insight into preparation for your soul before God? Well, no. It has a lot of content about how to understand certain political views or how to understand certain events or how to understand certain philosophies and ideas, but does it prepare anybody's soul before God? And the answer is no. So here's the the main idea. That Jesus, the Son of God, tells about the the end of the Jewish age Signs of his coming and his church's redemption and the necessary strategy to to be prepared for his coming. Christ's word is the only authoritative guide for the church to be prepared for his coming. Christ's word is the only authoritative guide for the church to be prepared for his coming. That's why I've titled this sermon, A Pilgrim's Guide to the End of the World by Jesus, the Son of God. A pilgrim's guide to the end of the world by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Christ's word is the only authoritative guide for the church to be prepared for his coming. Here's point number A, if you're taking notes. If you're following along through the, on the sermon notes through the app, uh, this is point, uh, point A. Jesus, the Son of God, speaks with accuracy about the coming end of the Jewish age. Jesus, the Son of God, speaks with accuracy about the coming end of the Jewish age. Uh, uh, Pastor Denton talked about this two weeks ago, about the destruction of the temple that's in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus says, days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This was after the disciples uh, and other people were observing about how beautiful the temple was. Look at its noble stones. Look at its gorgeousness. What a beautiful building that we as Jews get to worship in and have in our great city. And Jesus responds to that observation and that sense of worship of that building at, oh, by the way, uh, that building's going to be destroyed. Every stone's going to be thrown down. There's an importance to the temple, to the Jewish people. It defined their religion, it defined their culture, it defined their history, you think about the Capitol building of the U.S., right? That is a building, if someone were to say, by the way, that building will be destroyed and every stone will be thrown down, that would cause a lot of alarm in the United States, wouldn't it? What if some, like, terrorist somehow uh, cracked all the television studios and all the different signals and on the Internet, and that's all you saw, and he would said, in so, many, in so many years, that building will be destroyed, right? All the stones will be thrown down. It will cause some alarm. The disciples, when Jesus said this about the temple, were obviously alarmed, right? What do you mean that it's going to be thrown down? What good is that? Why is that something God would ever allow to happen? Jesus' prophecy was troubling to the disciples. They even asked him after he said this, he said, Teacher, when will these things be and what will, the, what will be the signs when these things are about to take place? They're asking like, okay, we're kind of alarmed, we're troubled, so let me ask you a few questions here. When's this going to happen? And what are some signs that you can tell us that this is about to happen? A very key word in this entire discourse by Jesus is when and then. He gives them the, when this happens, then this will happen. It's kind of a construct that he uses quite often. And he's answering their question, their question of being troubled and alarmed by this soon to become event, that the temple that they, then to go, that they do sacrifices in that's really important to their nation and to their religion and to their culture is somehow going to be destroyed. Who is it going to be destroyed by? And, and why would God allow this to happen? And so basically Jesus provides these signs and he, he talks about even in the, in the destruction of the temple that there's going to be many messiahs, many Christs, right, that are going to come. They're going to tell you that they're me, but don't listen to them because they're false. He said there's going to be wars, there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be famines, there's going to be persecutions, he even says there's going to be a great movement of evangelism, right? Because he says they're going to put you before kings, but don't worry. I'm going to use it as an opportunity to make my name known. Gospel witness, which is so interesting because what ends up happening after Jesus' resurrection ascension, and then when Paul is used to reach the Gentiles, who does Paul speak to? King Agrippa, the king of Israel, one of the kings. He actually shares the gospel with the king. So he is arrested for what purpose? To give as cuz then God uses that as an opportunity for kings to hear the gospel. He even Paul appeals to Caesar. Even though we don't see it in Acts, we can pretty much assume that Paul shared the gospel with Caesar, the the most powerful man in the world. So this is a part of what God what Jesus prophesies is that there's going to be a time of persecution, a time of wars, a time of, of pestilence and famine, but there's going to be also be a great movement of evangelism. The gospel will go forth. We see that Paul shares the gospel with many Jews, especially in Corinth. And what would they do? They hated what he was preaching. Jesus said, they're going to hate you because of your connection with me. So when you... So Jesus talks about this, and he says, these are going to be signs that the coming destruction of the temple is going to happen. He then starts off in verse 20 to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, that this is a part of, the temple will be destroyed, there'll be all this all this wars and famine and pestilence, but also the city of Jerusalem itself will be destroyed. He starts off in 20, he says, when, but when, when, it's important, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then when then, you will know that her desolation is near. So when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies coming to invade it, that is a sign that these things are about to happen. Jesus continues to answer the question the disciples had, that when will this happen, what are the signs? He says there will be armies that will surround the city, and they are not here as on humanitarian purposes. They're here to invade and destroy the city of Jerusalem. When will the temple be destroyed? When will the old system of the Jewish law be torn down? You will see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Then you will know. You will know this. This is the the sign. When you see this, then you will know that judgment and destruction is happening to Jerusalem. Jesus is providing the guidebook to the end of the Jewish age. Temple, the dis- Jerusalem, the city will be destroyed. There will be, as we saw, Jesus in Luke nineteen forty-one through 40, th- forty-one through forty-four. We see Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem because he knows about its coming destruction, and what will happen? How many people will die? How much uh, 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 suffering there will be? How much pain there will be? He weeps over the city that he loves, and he tells the disciples when they because they asked that question when's this going to happen what signs will come he says when their armies surrounding the city you will know that the temple will be destroyed that the old system that the jewish nation will uh, as we, as you know it will come to an end he even says that with this being said let let it be known for those who live in judah to flee into the mountains Let those who live in the city of Jerusalem to escape her, very similar to Lot and his family from Sodom and Gomorrah before its destruction, to flee the city, to flee for their lives. For people who live in the countryside, don't go into the city. When you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, don't go into the city. It will be destroyed. If you live in the city, when you see the armies coming, get out. When you live in the surrounding region, don't come anywhere near the city, flee to the mountains. Jesus then gives the reason why they should flee, because these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. This is the reason why these things are happening, or they're going to happen, is because of their rebellion, because of the Jewish rebellion against God. Jeremiah chapter six one through eight talks about uh, the judgment that will come upon Israel, and this is what Jesus is referring to—that all that is written will be fulfilled. Jeremiah chapter 6, if you have a Bible moved, put a finger on Luke and go to Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 1. Flee for safety, O people of Benjamin, from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Antica, and raise a signal on Beth Hachim, for a disaster looms out of the north in great destruction. The lowly and delicate breed I will destroy, the daughter of Zion. Shepherds with their flocks shall come against her, they shall pitch their tents around her, and they shall... Pasture eats in his place, prepare war against her, arise and let us attack at noon. Woe to us for the day declines, for the shadows of evening lengthen. Arise and let us attack by night and destroy her palaces. For thus says the Lord of hosts, cut down her trees, cast up a siege amount against Jerusalem. This is the city that must be punished. There is nothing but oppression within her. All of this has been prophesied against the Jewish nation by the prophets, and Jesus says that it's coming. That this destruction is coming. He even, uh, Jesus even continues that by giving a, a, a two woes. How dreadful for who? For pregnant women. For mothers who nurse infants. Why? Because they're unable to flee. They're unable to get out of the city because of their pregnancy or because of their children. They're trapped. Set up to be destroyed. There's a scene in the movie 1917, that movie that came out a few years ago about World War I. Uh, it's towards the end of the movie that, that kind of the hero of the story, uh, the one who's trying to get to the British Army to tell them of, of the kind of surprise attack of the Germans and that they're going to walk into a trap. He, he finds this young girl with a baby, and she's hiding from the German, from the German uh, soldiers, basically hiding from death. Um, and She's helpless. Why? Because she has this baby to care for. She has nowhere to go. How could she possibly run away from this destruction with this baby? And it's a really kind of like sad scene because you kind of feel her her being trapped, left to care for this baby. She's helpless. She's in terror. She's trapped in this war that she didn't start. She's not even fighting the war, but she feels it's terror because she is forced to take care of this child. And because she has this child, she can't escape. She can't flee. And Jesus says, woe to mothers who are pregnant or mothers who are nursing their child. They have no way of escape. He says the reason why they, they should be, uh, they should, the, the dreadfulness that is coming upon them is because there will be a great distress and wrath against this people, against Israel. This is another exile. Remember back in the Old Testament, Israel was conquered by the Babylonians and they were were sent to their nation that this is a new exile with very little hope of return. No mention of grace coming back. No moment of 70 years later, they'll come back to the land. No, there's no hope being given at all by Christ. They will fall by the edge of the sword. They'll be led captive into all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until kind of the extension of the templing, the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. All of this happened, by the way, this is not some prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. This happened 40 years later after it's given by Christ. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed by the Roman Empire. The city of Jerusalem was burnt to the ground by the Roman Empire. Titus, who was son of the emperor, came into Jerusalem, sieged the city, and killed everyone in it. Everyone. And when I mean everyone, I'm not just talking about the guys with the armor on. I'm talking about mothers and and farmers and children. Everyone was killed who was in the city. It was burned to the ground, completely destroyed. So there's accuracy about Christ's word. What he said 40 years before it happened happened exactly the way he said it would happen. The temple and the city were completely destroyed 40 years after his discourse. The Gentiles continue to trample on the Jewish nation. If you want to know why the, Jew, the, the Jewish Holocaust happened during the Nazi regime, Jesus says it was going to happen. He said they were going to be trampled by the Gentiles, and the Germans are Gentiles. There's going to be Holocaust, there's going to be distress, there's going to be horrification and terror that these people were experiencing. Before the Nazis even came, the Russians did the same thing to the Jews. A lot of nations, during the medieval times, the European uh, kings and, and, and the Catholic Church killed Jews. The Jews have been trampled by nations since this day, and they are continue to be exiled away from their, their land They're still threatened by Arab nations and Iran and other nations threaten them. Christ's word is credible and it's reliable. He continues to explain when the desolation of Jerusalem or Israel will end, and it will end in his second coming, which is the second point. The signs of Christ's coming brings anxiety and uncertainty to a lost world. Signs of Christ's coming bring anxiety and uncertainty to a lost world. This is a difficult passage to teach because Jesus says he tells this prophecy that does actually come to fruition and fulfills itself 40 years later, but then he gives another prophecy which almost seems like they interconnect or they have something to do with each other, but the problem is, is what he talks about in this next section hasn't happened yet. He says that there will be signs to the end of times, of the, of the time end of the times of Gentiles, which corresponds with his coming, that there will be an end to this desolation of the Jewish people, and it will end with his second coming. That is the extension of the Gentiles' time. So he uses this hyperbolic language. He, he kind of, again, this is, a hy- this is an apocalyptic literature that Jesus is giving us. He, he uses signs about moons and stars and, 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 and sun. There's a, in a sense, there's a language of a new order is coming into the world. All creation welcomes the end of the age. The, the sun and the stars and the moon are all used here to explain that there's a new age that's coming, that's erupting in the world which is interesting, and it's interesting because what do you see at the crucifixion of Christ? You see very similar language, don't you? What happens at the crucifixion of Christ? The sun went dark at a time when it doesn't go dark. There's earthquakes. There's cosmic things happening when Jesus is is stretched upon the cross. That is a cosmic event. It is the beginning of the end of the age. It's Jesus' crucifixion. The darkness, the earthquake creation was awakened to the initiation of a new age it's very similar language to explain the signs of christ's return on the earth anxiety of nation and uncertainty that with this cosmic event with this 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 rupture of a new world a new order that there will there be anxiety amongst the people of the world fearful in uncertainty. Due to what is happening, the earth is thrown into panic. Nothing makes sense anymore. All my guides and sources have not prepared me for this global disturbance. Oprah has not helped me here. The podcasts that I listen to daily have not prepared me for this global disturbance. Therefore, it has caused many to be in anguish. And uncertainty in what to do. Oprah doesn't tell me what to do. My podcast that uh, Tucker Carlson doesn't tell me what to do. What do I do? This will be a day that you knew the world was broken. For us as Christians, we can recognize that there are days that we recognize that the world is broken. Uh, if you wanted to say, if you had an art museum, and in your section of life where you identified, yeah, that was a moment where I understood that the world was broken. Uh, for me, it was probably 9-11, right? When those, when I saw those planes, I still kind of get horrified when I see the planes crush into those buildings, even watching documentaries now. I'm, it it kind of just shows you visibly in history that, man, the world's broken. For others, probably for your children, the pandemic has been one of those days, haven't you? When they look back at their life and go, when did I realize that the world was broken? Oh yeah, that's when daddy and mommy couldn't go to work. When We couldn't do stuff when we tell them, why can't we do that? Because of the virus. My, pa- my kids go, oh, oh yeah, we can't do that because of the virus. That tells them that there's something wrong in the world. That the world is broken. For others, it maybe is a horrible event in your life. Something, someone did something to you or you experienced something that you identified, yeah, the world is broken. And it caused anxiety of people. It created this moment in your life where you were fearful, that you were uncertain about what to do. For many people during 9-11, they didn't know what to do. They were so full of fear and all the things that they knew, all the people who told them what to think and what to do, they came to a point where like, oh, they were wrong. What do I do? For, the, for those during the pandemic, they had thought certain things and been told certain things, and their guides had told them certain things, and now that those guides showed to be unhelpful in a situation, so what were people? They were fearful. They were in despair. Why? Because they are uncertain about what to do. It says that during this time, when Jesus comes back, that people will be in a, the world will be in a place where many, many people will be disturbed, and they will be fearful because they don't know what to do. None of their guides had had prepared them for this. They will faint from terror of what is coming on the dwellers of the earth. Nothing you can do to protect yourself from the ones you love. That's when you are helpless. You are so helpless because you have no idea what to do. You have no idea where to go to. You have no source of comfort. You have no source of certainty. And even your kids, especially, you don't know what to tell them. There's no special force training, no survival training that will help you. No junior woodchuck guidebook to give you certainty because the powers of heaven are shaken, Jesus says. He then says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Uh, George Layton, who wrote a, a really good book on the New Testament theology, says that when Jesus uses the word title Son of Man, he is almost directly referring to Isaiah 53 that the suffering servant will come in clouds with great power and great glory. The man of sorrow who laid his life down for our sins and was crushed for our iniquities will come back again with power and glory. That same Jesus who was stretched out on a cross between two thieves is coming in a cloud with great power and great glory. There's only two responses to Jesus. In this life, you can look at Christ and say, woe is me, Jesus saved me. Woe is me, save me, son of David, for I am a wretched sinner and I need your grace. I am worthless and unable to save myself. Lord Jesus, will you save me? The other response is, is he is not to be trusted, I will save myself. But then when he comes back, you will say to yourself, woe is me, I was wrong. And know what it will lead to? anguish, and terror is the reaction to his second coming. I want to encourage you now, if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Christ, and you say to myself, I don't know if Jesus can be trusted. I don't know if I should listen to what he has to say. I don't think he is the son of God. I'm going to say this to you. Woe is you. You are a sinner who needs grace. Look to Jesus for salvation. Because you're you're going to come to a point when he returns and you're going to say, woe is me, and there is no offer of salvation and grace in that moment. The third point is this, the signs of Christ's coming brings anticipation of redemption to his church. So Jesus ends this section, and he says quite clearly, very powerfully, verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, remember the importance of when and then, when these things, these things being the signs that he's referring to, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. It says lift up your heads. See Christ in his power and his glory. Be filled with joy and encouragement at, at, as your redemption is at hand. I love we, for those who have come to the first John study. We we spent a lot of time obviously in first John, and we were in first John chapter three, which is a very um, powerful section of this of that great book. First John chapter three, verse one. And what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we will know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Which is encouraging to us believers is that when we see him in his power and glory in the clouds, we shall be transformed into the image of Christ completely. He will deliver us from the world. He will deliver us from ourselves and he will deliver us from Satan himself. The dark trinity, as as I've heard it been called, he will deliver us and redeem us completely. We will sing hallelujah His church longs for his final deliverance all to be set right, the world and ourselves. You know, for someone who got to visit the the giant sequoia trees in California, they're beautiful. Do you know right now that a lot of them are burning down because of the fires? Even something like that, these beautiful trees that you're full of just just an awe of how massive these trees are, that you're saddened when even trees are not protected from the finality or the destruction of the world. That they are not protected from uh, the subjection of futility to the world because of sin, that all will be set right, the world, ourselves, our fear and our anxiety and our anger that we experience today, because we are sometimes trust in the wrong things, and that we are led to uncertainty and to anxiety and to fear, that that will be set right that we will look at our Savior and Lord when He comes in the clouds full of His glory and, pa- and, and, and power, and we will be transformed just like Him. We will no longer have any anxiety. We will no longer have any anger or fear. We shall be full of joy constantly. We will be set right because Christ will set us right. But the issue that you have to remember is, is this is the only experience for those who are part of His church. If you're not a part of His church, you're part of the lost world, and you will be full of anxiety and fear when He returns. Trust in Christ and be full of joy and encouragement by his second coming. The fourth point is this, that everything that Jesus says is true. Everything that Jesus says is true. He, he says here kind of in this, this parable that he gives to kind of further explain uh, what he's talking about here. When he talks about uh, the, the leaves on a fig tree. When you start to see the leaves coming out, then you know that the summer is coming, that the harvest is coming, and you're full of joy. He says, so also will this take place when the kingdom of God is near. You'll know that the kingdom of God is near when you see these signs being fulfilled. When you start to see the leaves on the fig tree, you know that summer is coming. And he says this, and he ends this section saying, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. Our knowledge shall be rooted in Christ's word. His word is dependable. It will always come true. His church, who have longed for his return, will not be left disappointed because his word never passes away. Heaven and earth may pass away, but his word never passes away. His church will not pass away. They will remain faithful to his word and see this day come to pass. That we will not be overcome by Satan and his minions. We will not be overcome by the, the world. That we, The church will always be saved and protected by our Savior and Lord, and it will not pass away, and we will trust in his word, not ourselves or not the ways of the world. We will endure to the end by trusting in Christ's word to the end. And this is the last point. And therefore, be prepared for Christ's tr- coming with spiritual readiness. So he says all these things, and it's complicated. Like, what does it mean that this generation will not pass away? You Honestly, I don't know what that means. It can't mean... It can't mean that generation, because Jesus had not come back yet. Is he, is he talking about the church? I think maybe he is talking about the church. The church won't pass away, uh, that it won't pass away until this is fulfilled. But I really, I don't know. When, when the Bible uses apocalyptic literature, it's a little hidden. But It's important what, how Jesus ends this section. I think it is quite clear what Jesus is addressing here, and I think it's helpful for us. He says, watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down, with drunkenness and the cares of this life. Watch yourself. Be careful. He's speaking to the disciples and to the church. It'll be, it'll, you'll be tempted between the present and the future to pro- prioritize other things. He talks about drunkenness, which is basically a carefree lifestyle, hedonism, pleasures, entertainment, that you will be prone to prioritize pleasures you will be prone to prioritize excessive lifestyles. Earthly pleasures, searching for happiness, using money and your time and your relationships to consume the things of the world. That The way to be fulfilled and the way to have satisfaction is to just fill yourself with, eternal ple- with earthly pleasures. That is tempting to even the disciples and to the people of the church. During this time of when is Jesus coming back, the present into the future, as we deal with the struggles and the the pain and the suffering and persecution that the world throws at us, how do we stay alert? How do we stay careful? How do we uh, stay watchful? Well, first off, don't fall into excessive lifestyles. Don't fall into consuming and consuming the things of the world. Don't even be consumed or prioritize the goods of life or the cares of daily living. That your money and your time is spent on security and comfort for yourself and for your family. That you try to protect yourself or eliminate your anxiety and your anger by just basically making sure all your time and your effort and your money and your investment all just tries to create a comfort living for your family, and for yourself. Don't be tempted by that priority. It will be tempting to fall into that priority. Instead, because end ends up when you prioritize these things, your heart will be burdened. You will spend a lot of the time thinking, scheming, studying how to create comfort, how to protect, how to create security for you and your family. And by that, you'll be blinded to Christ's signs, and suddenly you're caught unprepared. Like a soldier who is not trained for upcoming battles, you're not ready. Your priorities are in a visible trap to what is coming. You don't think that your pursuits have any problems or, or have any, have any uh, consequences, but in a sense, you're in an invisible trap. You're prioritizing the wrong things, and by prioritizing the wrong things, you're not careful. You're not being watchful. You're not prepared for Christ's coming. Watch, be prepared by prioritizing your discipleship in the life of the church. That's how you're watchful. That's how you're careful. Too often, Christians who call themselves Christians are prioritizing their life and the wrong things. They're prioritizing the daily living. They're prioritizing their families. They're prioritizing their work. They're prioritizing entertainment or hedonism or pleasure. And by doing that, they're actually not prepared for Christ's coming because they're not prioritizing the right thing. They're not prioritizing their discipleship at all. And therefore, they're not praying for strength to endure and stand blameless before Christ through faith. Through the Holy Spirit, you will be led to prioritizing your discipleship if you understand that, yes, I need to be careful. Yes, I need to be watchful. I need to pray for strength to endure and stand blameless before Christ through faith. Therefore, I pray that, and the Holy Spirit uses that prayer to prioritize your life in discipleship in the church. I was always scared for people who don't come to church very regularly. I'm always scared for people who don't come and gather with other believers i'm always scared for people who don't come to bible studies why because they're prone to not be prepared they're not being watchful they prioritize the wrong things and what ends up happening is they're never christians in the first place and then when jesus comes back they will be in terror jesus i thought i called out your name i thought i went to church once in a while i never knew you why because you never prioritized me you were not prepared you're not spiritually ready If you prioritize discipleship, you will spend time in God's word. You will gather with believers in worship and teaching and fellowship. You'll give to one another. You'll give to the church. You'll serve one another. You will trust in Christ's words. You won't trust in podcasts. You won't trust in Facebook posts. You won't trust in Oprah. You won't trust in Fox News or CNN or MSNBC. You'll trust in Christ's word, and you will prioritize discipleship, and you will prioritize the church, and you will be ready. You'll be careful. You'll watch, you'll watch yourself if you, if you start to fall into these temptations that Jesus mentions here. I'm going to end with this, kind of where I started. I want to kind of return to it. I think if, if you wanted to say, what is a desire for a pastor? what does a pastor desire?" And I think I could probably answer that quite simply, is I think what I would want for a, the church that I led is that the people would not necessarily care what I have to say, but would care deeply about what Christ has to say. And so when I say things like, hey, I really want you to be at church more often, you don't see that as a way to say, well, that guy just wants people to hear his teaching. No, no, you know about the temptations of the world, and you know what will help them grow in likeness. You know what will help them be careful and watchful from these temptations. And you know if they hear God's word regularly, that's important to their life. When you say, hey, I think it's important that you come to at least some small group or Bible study of the week, it's not because you want them just to fill their week with some kind of Christian-y thing to do. No, you know that by going to these things, they're prioritizing discipleship in the life of the church. When you say, hey, are you you reading the Bible regularly? And they go, no, not really. You're not doing it because you just want them to read the Bible because that makes you happy or it makes you a better pastor. No, you know, but if they prioritize reading the Bible, it will lead them to be careful and watchful from these temptations. They'll be ready for Christ's return. There's a discord when focus on Christ's word is desperately needed. Right now, the church is in discord. There is is so much division in the church. And really, we can pretty much say why there's division in the church because we're not rooted in a common theology whatsoever. Like, when you talk about going to certain churches, some churches don't even believe in the Bible at all. We're like totally different religions, completely. This is from uh, James Ernest. who's the chief of, chief of an editor of Chief at Ed- Ederman's uh, Publishing Company, which is a Christian publishing company. He says, what we're seeing is a massive discipleship failure caused by massive catechism failure that people do not know the Bible because they've never heard or listened to teaching of the Bible. They've been going to church because of entertainment purposes or whatever reason. And what you're seeing today is a consequence that people have not been discipled, that people do not know the teachings of God's word, that they are guided by other guides and not by Jesus Christ. The people at church spend more time listening to news personalities, podcasts, YouTube influencers, and less and less time listening to sermons, going to Bible study or theology classes. Pastors may get 45 minutes a week of teaching time with those in the church if they even come weekly, which is unlikely for most. Man, pastors have no hope No hope. If the people will not even regularly come to service. Most people that go to a church in America rarely ever go to to church and they never go to Bible studies during the week. They don't have time. But yet they have time, three hours a day, to listen to Fox News or CNN or MSNBC. Alan Jacobs says... People come to believe what they are most thoroughly and intensively catechized to believe, and that catechism comes not from the churches, but from the media they consume, or rather the media that consume them. The churches have barely better than a snowball's chance in hell of shaping most people's lives. The way our sensibilities are shaped determines who we are, including the order of our loves, if you are to be watchful and prepared to endure difficult times now and ahead, you must prioritize discipleship, which starts with trust in Christ's words as the only authoritative God in your life. It has to start there. If you can't start there, there is no hope that you will be prepared for Christ's coming. Study it, know it, pray it, discuss it, sing it, meditate on it, listen to it. Please, I beg you, please do this. When one of your pastors say, you need to come to Bible study, please listen to them. What they want you to do is to prioritize Christ. That's what they want from you. They want you to be ready. They want you to be prepared. If you do not, you will be catechized by this world and it will burden your heart to their concerns. It will lead you to be unprepared, fearful and full of anxiety and uncertainty Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He knows the end. If you you are to escape and stand blameless, trust in Him alone. Know Him and His Word. That's all that I can give you as a fellow pilgrim trying to understand this world and the end. And the place that I go to is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the author of... The, the, his Word is there. It's, been, it's displayed to us to understand it and to know it and to believe it. And if you're full of fear right now, you have to ask yourself the question, are you trusting in Christ? Or are you being guided by someone else? And if you're being guided by someone else, realize that is a temptation that Christ mentions here and prioritize His Word and prioritize discipleship in the life of the church. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I I know, Lord, that uh, these passages can be difficult to understand. They could be um, a struggle to understand every passage in here and when are these things going to happen and what are these signs going to look like. But I think it's pretty clear the uh, the purpose of what's being said is that we as the church are going to have to endure. That we're going to have to use one another and rely on one another to endure. But ultimately, Lord, we have to rely on your word. We have to rely on the words of Christ. Lord, if we are to be faithful to the end, and Lord, as, as, a, as, a, as a pastor, uh, as a leader of fellow pilgrims, Lord, that's what I desire for them as well, is that they would trust your word, they would, they would see it as the only authoritative guide in their life, Lord, that they would be molded by it, that they would define their lives by it, and they would use it, Lord, to guide them to truth and to understanding and to peace. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters right now that are struggling. They're full of fear right now. They're full of anxiety. They're full of uncertainty right now, Lord. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that that maybe one of their issues is is that they're trusting in so many different sources of wisdom and truth, that they're being blinded and they're not seeing and not spending time in the words of Christ where there is certainty, where there is power, where there is truth, where there is understanding, where there's life. And I pray pray that you would lead them to your word, that they would spend time in it, that they would discuss it with other believers, that they would come and listen to your teaching and they would worship, Lord, and gather with other believers, Lord, who define their identity by your word. Lord, I, I pray that as a pastor here and for my fellow pastors, that's what they desire for the people of this church. Lord, I pray that you would lead them, Lord, to spend time in your word, to gather with other believers in your word. I pray that you would do that here. That they w- we, we can think of a person that came to church here at Redeemer that wasn't studying your, th- their, your word, who wasn't a part of gathering with other believers to discuss your word or study it together. We couldn't think of anyone who was disconnected in that way. I pray that you would do that here and do that at other churches as well. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.